Hey there, TV watchers. Bill Brio here, and you're listening to Brio TV, the podcast, the show where we talk to special guests about the constantly evolving world of television. This episode is brought to you by Super Channel, providing viewers with exceptional value and variety. CTV, which urges you to get into it this summer, and by Hollywood Suite, showcasing the best movies of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Okay, helmet on. Here we go. I've got a message here saying this meeting is being recorded. Those are some words to live by. My goodness. So I'm glad to read that. Anyway, listen, my guest has written for many publications, including The Guardian, The New Republic, The Walrus, The Globe and Mail, and American Quarterly. And he's an assistant professor of literature at Victoria College at the University of Toronto. This is the same college where the subject of his new biography studied with distinction. Please welcome the author of Norman Jewison, A Director's Life, Ira Wells. Ira, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Well, listen, Ira, and I got to be right up front and honest here. We we spoke two days ago, and I screwed up. I'm trying to handle the Zoom call myself, and we had this wonderful conversation, and then I went to listen to it, and it wasn't there, and it's that sickening feeling. Like, uh, you know, it brought me back to my U of T days when you'd wake up in the middle of the night sweating, thinking, do I have an exam tomorrow? You know, like that uh, feeling that you're naked somewhere in public, that you've screwed up, right? I still have those dreams that, that I forgot to write a test somewhere and I'm sitting down and it's a math test and it's all these equations that I've forgotten. And I still, I literally still have those dreams. Yeah, so. well, me too. So, uh, but it's, it's very nice and generous of you to do this again. I really appreciate it. Um, and it's a pleasure to talk about your book. And uh, I, it's wonderful, folks. Norman Jewison, A Director's Life. It's from Sutherland House. It's out now. It's available in bookstores everywhere. And it's a great read about a really interesting man, someone I've always been uh, fascinated with and had uh, uh, the good fortune to speak to on a couple of occasions. So, Ira, congratulations again on the book. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, no, it was a pleasure to write. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite things in in writing the book and talking to people about it is that everyone everyone has has heard of Norman Jewison, but they they don't always have haven't always put the the dots together of just how many of their favorite films he's directed. I mean when you when you sort of go through the list and it's in the heat of the night and Thomas Crown Affair and Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar and Moonstruck. I mean people of course know all those films, but I think that they often don't know that a single person directed them all um and uh so he you know he's this immense immense talent that in, in some ways has been sort of hiding in plain sight among canadians yeah because it's such a diverse list too i was just reading your book too and thinking about rollerball and thinking today that would be the fast and furious film or something you know that that's a film you just don't associate with dormant jewish and it's a science fiction sports hybrid a very unique film I remember seeing it. I was probably 16 and uh, it was probably it's either ahead of its time or very of its time. Right. That one in particular. Yeah. Um, I mean, that one has been remade at least once. I think there's a second remake in that I've that I've heard about in the works. Um, and um, in fact, I think the director, John McTiernan, has remade two of Jewison's movies. I think he also direct, did the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair. Right. With, uh, Pierce Brosnan. But Rollerball, that was, you know, that was um, picking up on the incredible violence in sports that was just sort of taking off in the mid 70s. I don't know if you, if you remember or were uh, very conscious of the, um, you know, the, the incredible bench clearing brawls and these teams like the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia yeah. Flyers. And, and it was also creeping into baseball and there were these huge brawls that were happening at, at soccer matches across Europe. And uh, I think Jewison was picking up on that and a lot of sort of evil Knievel type stuff on, on TV and just the sort of commercialization of violence was, was kind of sickening to him. And uh, so rollerball was, was about that. And also about the power of, of corporations. Um, the, the world of rollerball is, is run by, I think six or seven big corporations and the, the way that they've sort of anesthetized the masses is by having this incredibly violent gladiatorial combat 
uh, sport where everyone's sort of where guys are getting their brains stamped out on the <laughs> the track, and it's and it's sort of this catharsis that has eliminated violence in the society. So, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, in some ways it's a film of its time, but the last scene of Rollerball is still, I think, one of the most haunting and sort of um, you know, it just gives you shivers. I'll have to go back and watch it again, but certainly the whole corporate angle, when you think today the world is run by Amazon, Google, uh, you know, uh, four or five companies, it's a very uh, uh, a film that was very uh, observant for its time. Um, now, let's go right back to the beginning here. I'm always fascinated because writing a book, my goodness, is a, is a lot of work. Uh, it's a big task. How long did it take you to write this? Did you work on this book, uh, Ira? It was a year of research, a year of writing, and a year of editing. So three years in total. My goodness. And you know what I love about your book and appreciate the notes? Oh, my goodness. Everything's there. You've, there's a great note section. And I've written a, a book several years ago, and that's a tedious task. Uh, you know, you've got to really, you've got a, a friend of mine said what you need to do is get about, this was a while ago, like 40 CDs and just put on a lot of music. <laughs> and go over right and, and just go over everything but it's very very helpful to have all that information because you've done so much research so congrats on that and thank you um and uh again uh, what was it about jewish and first of all what was the, f- the first jewish and film you ever saw and uh was it be- through this your your association at victoria college i mean he's an icon there uh was that did that have a lot to do with your um, idea to to do a biography on Norman Jewis. Yeah, the pieces really fell in place, and and um, Victoria College was largely res- responsible for for. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm responsible for anything you don't like about the book, but the, Vic <laughs> is responsible for uh, for putting the pieces in place to allow it, it to happen. In the sense that um, that's where his archive one one big chunk of his archival papers are. So. Um, I was being given a tour of the uh, of the archives by the chief librarian of of the, the E.J. Pratt Library at, at Victoria College, who was taking me down in this sort of climate controlled, um, you know, on a subterranean archival area <laughs> and showing me all the and it was you know it felt a little bit like the that scene from the Raiders of the Lost Ark <laughs> with all the boxes everywhere wow. and and um, and there were these you know there's this one section where there were these eighty legal boxes of, of documents, um, and, you know, containing sometimes dozens of files in each box and hundreds of pages in a file, you know, just, a, just overflowing with, with, uh, papers that, that Norman Jewison had kept his entire life. Um, these would have been assembled, I assume by, a, an assistant, um, who had just filed everything away. Um, all of his letters, all of his correspondence, all of his memos and telegrams and contracts and di- business dealings and, um, and and not to mention the scripts that he'd annotated all, you know, for for decades, and so you could really uh, piece together the entire career. It was a letter writing culture. Everyone wrote letters all the time. You know, he's he himself is writing multiple letters a day. It seems like, and uh, and so a big chunk of the work is you know is transcribing all those letters, getting them in some kind of a format that you can work with, and figuring out where he was on any given day. So it was a great, uh, it felt like a detective project in, in, uh, at, at times. And, um, and also there's just a, a kind of magic in touching all those documents and sort of tangibly realizing, feeling physically how these movies came to be and, and touching the, the, the same documents that the, the letters that he and Hal Ashby are sending back and forth. Oh my it. goodness. Those letters are fascinating. And uh, you, you really, it really is conveyed in the book. If you read the book, you're taken right back to the years and the, and the times these conversations happened. Uh, Hal Ashby was the editor for, with Norman Jewison for the first 10 years of his filmmaking and uh, a, a very pivotal collaborator in that period went on of course to have his own uh career as a director that jewison really mentored and encouraged and then they had this falling out and it's all in these letters and it's really those and the letters between steve mcqueen and jewison and the heads of the studios it, it it's fascinating so you must have really been uh like you say you're like an explorer in indiana jones going through all of this 
yeah, I mean, that, that's, that was really exciting uh, going through that stuff. And so I, I do try to, um, I know I try not to bore the reader, but I try to include as many of those letters as I, I felt I could get away with, because to me that just reading these, these legendary people in their own words, you know, what they're actually writing and sort of reconstructing what it would have felt like to be in the middle of all this was, uh, was great fun for me. And also you get the actual words, right? Like, I love this chapter here, Blood on the Track 14. You're just talking about a period in his life when he's in Switzerland skiing, and he decides to, uh, quote, skied off all my fat and a lot of hostility. Uh, You know, that's a phrase only reading letters could pop out at you, right? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was off. Yeah, I was struck by the character you know you get a sense of the character emerges in those letters and mm-hmm. and some of them are surprising and passionate and oh god some of the some of the the letters where he's um he's responding or he's he's sort of digesting some of the negative feedback that he gets from critics uh over the years that's that's some of the most poignant uh, ones to me um where where he's trying to to justify or to um to explain to, to collaborators why a film has gotten viscerally negative feedback, which, which happened, you know, several times over his career, but you get the sense that he did not, he, he, he takes it seriously, right? Like he, he reads all the reviews. He's very aware of it. And it, and his hometown critics in Toronto were some of his harshest, weren't they? And, uh, and again, we were talking about rollerball and fiddler that era. Uh, he came back for these screenings and, I think was probably shocked to be so uh, dismissed in his hometown. Yeah, he he had a rough go uh, in the home from the hometown critics. He would even even you know a film like um, In the Heat of the Night, which won Best Picture in 1968, it beat out yeah. beat out Graduate, beat out Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. beat out Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. You know, a really epochal film. Globe and Mail panned it. amazing yeah and it was embraced uh you know around the world and roger ebert and people uh great critics at the time pauline kale wow she gave him several raves of early films that uh were would have been a, a prize for him at that point we'll be right back after this message i'd build a big tall house with the rooms by the dozen Right in the middle of the town A fine tin roof with a real wooden floors below Hey, buckle up, movie fans, and get set for the hottest event of the summer. Yes, I'm talking about Hollywood Suites Box Office Bonanza, a star-studded collection of number one films running straight through till the end of August. Highlights for me include one of the funniest movies ever made, Airplane plus fun flicks such as Talladega Nights and The Naked Gun. Can't get enough sequels? All summer long, Hollywood Suite is showcasing Franchise Fridays. That's where you'll find Superman 1, 2, and 3, all three Men in Black movies, a couple of Rockies, Aliens, Matrixes, and Terminators, and even a pair of Kill Bills. Will the suite host a Sylvester Stallone week? Hey, absolutely. Starting in July, including one-offs such as Cliffhanger, Copland and Demolition Man. Get all the box office bonanza details online at Hollywood Suite Summer 2021. Yo, Adrian, tell him Rocky sent you. And we're back. Let's uh, let's go back and just and, uh, just for people just to make sure everyone knows, Mr. Jewison is still with us. We're very fortunate. He'll be 95 in July. He's still a pretty vital guy. Uh, and, um, uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's that, but people may not realize the career he had in television way back, um, leading up to his days as a film director. Um, and from what, from reading your book, uh, you have stories in there of him directing and learning to be a director right at the very beginning in Canadian television. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, even before there was a Canadian television, so he, <laughs> he, um, you know, he, he, he wanted a career in show business, and um, at one point, 
moved or, or traveled to Los Angeles to, to make a go of it as an actor. And it very quickly became clear that that was not going to work out for him. Uh-huh. And he came back with his, with his tail between his legs. I mean, he was a very young man at this point. And, and this was just when television was starting. And so he wondered that he thought maybe television would be an alternate way in. Uh, but at this point, there was no Canadian television. He went off to the BBC to get some training there. Uh, he looked up a Canadian who was uh, working for the B- doing a, a show called Bedtime with Braden. Who was he was uh, Bernard Braden was the uh, the host, and Jewison worked as his stand-in uh, while Braden was Braden was also the director. So he would have to be, you know be in the booth and do other things, and Jewison was his stand-in and just sort of um, lapped it all up, uh, absorbed everything that he could absorb about television. And by the time he came back in 1952, that's when Canadian television was finally um, close to being being able to launch. Um, the CBC was still finishing its uh, Jarvis Street studio. Uh, they had brought in a number of American technicians, uh, a guy named uh, Sylvester Weaver, um, Sigourney Weaver's father, well, an yeah. early television executive, was, was helping the CBC uh get their get their operations off the ground um and jewison is is literally learning like how how does a signal go from the uh you know the studio to your what, what's the chemical and 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 what's the mechanics of this process and there you, you get a sense of reading all that material of how how much of an accomplishment it was just to just to create a televised televised image i mean that that in itself was no small task yeah, no kidding. Amazing the convergence of talent. Fritz Weaver uh, was uh, so fundamental at NBC. He created the Today Show and the Tonight Show. wasn't the the guy in charge for very long, but had a significant impact. So uh, these guys, smart guys, all together in one place. And in Canada too, I've talked to people over the years. Uh, William Shatner talks about being directed by Norman Jewison at the CBC in the 50s. And uh, folks like that, like anybody who was acting, you know, Christopher Plummer, uh, they would have encountered Norman Jewison back then um, in Canada working. And then he went to, uh, as you see, he went to England, learned some things there, and went to um, America, where all of a sudden, and very young at this point, and looking even younger, he's telling everybody frank sinatra and uh all of these big names judy garland uh where to stand what to do how to sing that's yeah yeah stuff right i you know this is this is one of the big kind of mysteries to me and (laughs) that i wanted to crack when i was writing the book is how does this kid who grew up in the beaches in the 1930s and and 40s um he's driving a cab for diamond cabs in Toronto, the night shift uh, in the early 1950s. And 10 years later, he's directing the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. And it's like, how does that happen? You know, what's the, what's, what, what, what genie came out of a bottle and, and let that and, and made that happen. And of course there's no genie. It's just this tremendous sort of force of will uh, this charisma, this confidence, this, um, but he didn't come from privilege, right? He, he came from right. a pretty rough background. Um, the beaches was not a nice part of Toronto in the, in the 1930s. It was very anti-Semitic. It was, a, and everyone thought he was, he was a Jew. Mm-hmm. It was a tough, tough neighborhood. But clearly he learned uh, early on how to read people, how to read a room. And um, I, a friend of mine who's since passed away in LA, a photographer, Gene Trindle, he shot more TV guide covers than anyone else, over 200 covers, especially in the 60s, you know, Star Trek, the monkeys, you name it. And Gene had a picture on the wall of his office, and it was of Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin. And um, it wasn't a particularly inspiring shot, but it was the moment he knew he could do this. It was He was young, and he literally had to say, Frank, stand over there. Dean, do this. Uh, okay, stop fooling around. Okay, okay, we're ready. We're going to – and Gene always said that photography was 90% uh, psychology uh, and 10% perspiration, and I think that was Jewison too, right? Like he just knew – and your book makes this so clear – in any situation, how to handle people and to do it – 
in a direct way that got results. Yeah, you know, that's that was one of the, I, I think one of his, uh, you know, skills is, is, is not really the right word because it's more than a skill for him. It's just a kind of like, um, you know, way of being in the world. It's just sort of who he is. But that, that ability to um, make psychological decisions about, uh, understand the psychology of the person who he's working with and modulate his own behavior. You know, in a, in a sense, he, he I, I said earlier that he wanted to be an actor and in a sense, he, he was an actor and, and, and that his, he was performing as a director and he could modulate his performance. Um, I, was, I know we, we're talking about, about television, but I'll, I've got a good example of this. I'll just skip ahead a little bit yeah. in, the, in the career. Um, the, the the clearest you know way that this was put to me was by the director Bruce McDonald who who said that he was watching Jewison direct um, Agnes of God which was in the mid 1980s and he was directing Meg Tilly um, Jane Fonda and Anne Bancroft and Bruce said that Br- Bruce was I think his driver or something he was just on set sort of watching <laughs> wow. Jewison perform wow. and he said that when he was directing um, Anne Bancroft. It was like a brother sister relationship that they knew the same people in New York and they were, they just seemed very comfortable with one another. And it was very much a brother sister thing with Jane Fonda. He said it was like ex-boyfriend and girlfriend. Like there there was a little bit of a flirtation there. There was a, you know, there was a little bit of chemistry, playfulness with Meg Tilly. It was father daughter. Wow. That he was very, very gentle, very um, nurturing Mm-hmm. very caring. And what really struck Bruce was that, you know, he, Jewison was not the kind of director who would walk onto a soundstage and just start like imposing himself on people, but rather he would completely change who he was depending on who he was talking to and what would bring the best out of them. And that he would just, he would become the director that the actor needed in that moment. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, in your book too, he, he tried to uh, persuade Bancroft to, to be in several pictures, didn't he? I think she turned him down two or three times before finally doing Agnes of God. Yeah. He wanted her for Fiddler on the Roof and uh, he might've even, I, I can't remember. It might, it may have, he may have even wanted her for uh, Thomas Crown Affair, but yeah, he, he was one. Jack Lemmon was another. Yeah. He, there are several actors who he tries to engage uh, and it never works out. Although the list that he did work with is of course way longer than, Pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. All right. So we're at his TV days and he's, uh, I gather, in New York directing at this point, or was it LA? He's doing Judy Garland, um, and uh, who uh, had a reputation for being hard to handle, difficult. Again, Jewish and skills with personalities came to the fore. And uh, there's a show with some big name guests, including uh, Tony Curtis. And uh, from what I understand, Curtis was so impressed with Jewison that when he went to start his own productions, uh, Jewison was the guy he called on to direct uh, his uh, first feature film, uh, Jewison's first, 40 Pounds of Trouble. That's right. So at this point, Jewison had done a lot of live TV, a lot of variety. Um, he had done things like Your Hit Parade, Andy Williams, um, uh, things of that, things of that nature. Then he made, made the big leap is is with uh, Tonight with Belafonte, uh, right. nineteen fifty nine, um, hour long special with with Tony Belafonte, which was really a monumental hour of TV. Uh, really encourage any anyone to take a look at that. It's on YouTube. Um, and wow, does that feel uh, contemporary and urgent and um, in, in its in its treatment of racial matters? His next big special is uh, is the Judy Garland. Uh, special, uh, another hour-long special. The the uh, the Belafonte one had won an Emmy, which is what you know it, it really went over well, and it kind of cemented his um, status as a prestige director of this kind of thing. Right. Uh, he does, and and but CBS is not all that sure that Judy Garland can carry this thing on her own. So they they're encouraging. They say, you know, we'll just go and get Frank Sinatra. Um, so Jewison, it falls to Norman Jewison to, who I think at this point, you know, Tony Curtis says he looks like your paper boy to, um, <laughs> phone up Frank Sinatra and, uh, and he, and he says, well, you know, and by the end of the conversation, he sort of cranks up the Jewison charm. And by the end of the conversation, it's, you know, when, why don't you bring Dean Martin too? So, wow. so Sinatra comes and, and brings Dean Martin and, and it's on that set. So they're rehearsing Judy Garland and it's on that set that he meets Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis is, is, uh, 
is part of the scene and uh, shows up to hang out with Dean and, and uh, Frank and, and sees something in Norman Jewison. And that's the connection where he, he when he'd lead, uh, he invites Norman Jewison to direct, uh, you're right. I think it was the first picture for Curtis Enterprises, which is Tony right. Curtis's production company. Yeah. And uh, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I have a, I collect 16 millimeter film and I have a print of 40 pounds of trouble uh, that I watch occasionally. It's a, a charming film from, I think, 1962. Phil Silvers is in it. Uh, and uh, Tony Curtis, of course, Larry Storch, who's still alive. Um, and I told Jewison that I had a print of his film. I said, you know, I've got 16 millimeter print of 40 pounds of trouble. And he leaned into me and he said, burn it. Oh God, he's so unfair. <laughs> I know. Uh, I find it quite entertaining. It's a remake of an old Shirley Temple film, and they shot a lot of it at Disneyland, which uh, is fascinating. So, you know, you rarely see early in any movie Disneyland as a background. And from what I understand, and you would know that the script literally just had a note saying uh, they go to Disneyland and uh, there's a chase. And and I guess Jewison managed to get three days in the park. And literally, this was the part of the film he loved because he created this whole Keystone Cops silent movie sequence, right? Exactly. Yeah, that was what really drew him or what most excited him about the film. Yeah. Um, he... Uh, so the, he, as I said, he's very unfair to the to the picture, and and he is to uh, all of his Universal movies. Uh, he directed four for Universal, um, a couple with Doris Day and Rock Hudson, and um, and one called The Art of Love with uh, Dick Van Dyke and um, James Garner. Um, but he was he was you know he he's kind of written them off or or sort of disowned them. They're actually a lot better, I think, than uh, than certainly than he gives some credit for, and, and some of them are quite good and thoughtful, I, I think, and, and sort of very engaging. With you know, he's he's known as a, as a director who's who's so engaged with social issues, and I think that even in those movies, you can see it. You you see it in places. Um, Forty pounds of trouble. Yeah, they they're shooting in Disneyland. Um, there's a California state law that says that when children are working on motion picture sets, they have to be in school. So they have to turn the Disneyland, li- the the little theater, into a school, into an open air school. So you can imagine the torture of these poor kids who are in <laughs> Disneyland going to school. Right? No, um, that's not fair. That's not good. Um, it's a charming sequence. So he does. He speeds up the camera, and he's got Curtis jumping in and out of the motor cars and uh it, that's right there's a, a very low speed chase with tony curtis behind the, the car of <laughs> the autopia ride and yeah but th- what's cool about that 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 scene is um how he really kind of recapitulates the history of american motion pictures i mean that's that's might sound like a nerdy thing nerdy thing to say but there's like a kind of cowboys and indian section and there's a car chase section and there's yeah. a, an adventure section and you know in in this sort of sped up wacky keystone cops type way he kind of you know he he takes this romp through american cinema yeah well it's the perfect place for it disney conceived it as a uh a movie in a way like when you entered into the park it you walk through something and it's sort of like the the titles of the film and then boom you're in the movie uh so he took full advantage of that um we're going to take a short break when we get back with uh, ira wells author of norman jewison a director's life we're going to talk about a part uh in uh where jewison took the leap uh, from making films for studios to making his own films as a producer and a director. And when we get back, we'll get right into that. Try not to get worried. Try not to turn on to problems that upset you. Don't you know everything's all right? Yes, everything's fine. And we want you to sleep well tonight. Did you used to play with Lego bricks when you were a kid? Of course you did. Imagine you had an unlimited supply of Lego and somebody was going to award you tens of thousands of dollars for snapping together a brick version of the CN Tower or even a brick Stanley Cup. That's the deal with Lego Masters back for a second season Tuesday nights on CTV. Will Arnett is one of my favorite podcasters and check him out on Smartless with Jason Baseman and Sean Hayes. He's the host of Lego Masters. It's all part of a fun summer schedule on CTV. Besides Lego Masters, the network is also airing the Celebrity Dating Game on Mondays. It's hosted by Zooey Deschanel from New Girl 
and Michael Bolton from, well, the 90s. CTV is also bringing back the Extreme Obstacle Course series Wipeout in a whole new version, plus the $100,000 Pyramid with Michael Strahan as host. There's also the Brady Quiz series Mental Samurai featuring Rob Lowe. So follow the Lego Brick Road and get into it this summer on CTV. All right, well, we're back with Ira Wells, author of Norman Jewison and Director's Life, talking about the great Canadian director who's done so many films, 24 feature films. What a career. A couple of Best Picture Oscar winners. And uh, Ira, I'm curious, too, before we jump right back into uh, the next film I want to talk about, just the process of writing. Uh, it's, it's a big task. Three years you worked researching and writing this book. Um, did you get up early in the morning to get an hour in it? You have young children. You know, it's a, part of it may have been through COVID times. How did you get this project done? Yeah, so I, I did tend to um, set an alarm for 5.30 in the morning and would wake up and try to get a couple of hours in uh, each morning, get my little quota, quota done. I'd try to do 500 words a day, um, which is just about a page, single-spaced. Um, and if I... I find that if I if I don't if I leave it for later in the day, the focus just isn't there. So I'm I'm a morning person. Um, I'm trying to try to get a bit done each day. The um, the research is a little different because the the research is, you know, it, it require it's not quite the same sort of brain power. And of course, I I couldn't do it at home. I had to physically be in the archives. Right. Um, and uh, and yeah, that was you know that was a lot of fun too. Just the sort of unearthing the mysteries and the needle in the haystacks. Uh, it's it's uh, you know the 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 ratio of stuff that made it in the book versus stuff that you actually research is you know it, it, I don't know thousand to one maybe yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah a bit like making a film yeah i think so you know except you're all by yourself you don't have uh, uh the editor and the cameraman and everybody else you know uh, when, Jewison, when he when he started making films you might find this this interesting bill yeah he do you know do you know the biggest challenge that he had with 40 pounds of trouble uh when he when he made the jump from live tv to films was uh, maybe just uh, it took so long probably because he was used to the fast speed of television perhaps it was totally related to pace. It was that he found he found it to be excruciatingly boring. <laughs> wow! Yeah, to sit around and and wait for setups. I mean, he's used to live TV, and it was where live TV was just chaos. You know, when you hear him describe what what that was like, uh, it was just just sort of madness. Uh, anything yeah. could happen on live TV, and it often yeah. did. You know, well, uh, mm. he describes there was a. Uh, on one of his early variety shows, a woman is dressed up in a bird costume and walks out on stage to do her number with a, a pigeon in each hand. And the moment she steps on camera, the, the pigeons just fill her hands with bird crap on live TV. And <laughs> the just mortified. Uh, I'd pay to see that now on television. That should be a show. <laughs> I think and there was a, a- he had a hypnotist on and the, the hypnotist turned the host into a kind of catatonic blubbering mass. And this led to an act of parliament or something, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Canadian government passed something to to ban hypnotists from the airwaves. They were worried about mind control that the wow. communists the communists would take us over through hypnotizing us on TV. It's sort of like how the government now is trying to control everything that we post on the internet. I think. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> we'll get into Bill C ten later. Um, listen, so we're at a point now. Jewison's made a bunch of films for four or five films for Universal, I think. And um, he's at a point where he's itching to put his stamp on it. And he starts uh, working on a couple of films. Um, was it The Russians Are Coming? Was that the first one that he produced and directed? Yeah, so he takes over He takes over from Sam Peckinpah on The Cincinnati Kid. Right. But that's not his project. He... he you know, it's it's a change from the the romantic comedies is, that he's been directing from Universal. So I think he feels liberated in some ways when he comes to the Cincinnati Kid. But he's still a hired gun. Uh, McQueen and the rest of them, uh, Joan Blondell and um, Edward G. Robinson, they were all in place. He inherited that. Yeah. Um, but the Russians are coming as his from. Uh, you know, he 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 options the novel, which was called The Off-Islanders by Nathaniel Benchley, Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws' father. Right. Um, 
options the novel. It was called The Off Islanders. You know, finds a screenwriter. Really, just just that's the first time where he. It's it's the first Norman Jewison production. Yeah, and um, it's a wonderful film. I love uh, the Russians are coming. Uh, Alan Arkin, who was until recently on the Kaminsky Method, his first role is in a feature film uh, as a Russian on a submarine. And um, you know, there was what Jewison learned though from the film was he he had a hard time landing a big name star to play one of the pivotal roles. He was trying to get who was it again? He, he was looking for uh, Jack Lemmon. Yeah, Jack Lemon. So uh, he didn't get Jack Lemon. His fallback ended up being Carl Reiner. And I've, I've spoken to Reiner about the film. Uh, he's passed away last year, sadly, but he lived to be 98. And he great, great respect for Jewison because he said he had the great wisdom to make me a feature film star. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So there's a wonderful typical, typical understate, understatement there from uh, Carl Reiner. Yes. And I've got uh, Carl Reiner has wrote a bunch of books at the end of his life. And one of them, he wrote a, a story uh, about um, three macho cowards is his chapter. And it's at the time of uh, the Russians are coming. So in the film, you've got Brian Keith, uh, you've got Eva Marie Saint and, uh, uh, Carl Reiner, of course, and they get up in an airplane with Jewison. Do you know this story, Ira? <laughs> tell, tell the story. I do. I do know it, but but please tell it. It's a, most people it's, won't. This is like a, a scene from a film. Like it's madness. Uh, these guys decide to take a trip. They're filming in where was it? Fort Bragg, uh, somewhere up the coast, where they, yep. they and they and everything. And uh, they all nearly get killed in a little Beechcraft uh, airplane, don't they? Just ha- this is the one where, where Jewison ends up hanging out the back of the airplane. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, like, it's crazy to read this thing and how terrified they all were. Everyone, apparently, except Eva Marie Saint, it was uh, calm and collected. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I can't, I don't remember the whole story if it was in a storm or something, but the pilot, they just had this terrible flight during the production of this film that they all could have been killed. They, yeah. They were going home over weekends or something and they were on their way back. And as you say, there was a big storm and somebody, maybe Brian Keith or somebody had like bought a, you know, a set of cowboy boots for their kid or, or right. you know, but had a memento yeah. and, and somehow the, the door ends up opening and, Jewison is lunging for these cowboy boots and is hanging out the back of the airplane with one hand. It it seemed a little, you know, I thought about including some version of that story in, in, uh, in the biography, but it seemed, it seemed a little far-fetched to me. It does. It sounds like it's from a mad, mad, mad man world, you know, rather than Russians are coming. Um, uh, and, and again, just talk a bit. We talked about this, too, how Jewison is shooting this film. He found a, a town up the coast uh, where he was fairly isolated. He's, he's making this movie, and he literally invites the townspeople to come and watch the daily rushes. There's a community hall, and they are all gather, and they, and they look at this every single day, which I've never heard of anyone doing that before, right? Yeah, the studio reps were flabbergasted that he was doing this. You know, why why are you showing the dailies to uh, to the whole town? Um, and Alan Arkin describes how uh, you know, the the raucous that they couldn't even hear the the dialogue half the time. There'd be babies crying and <laughs> dogs barking. People would bring their dogs, and it was just it just became the thing to do in uh, in Fort Bragg. Um, and Jewison would have to sort of stand up on the on the seats and scream at people to shut up and um but but it it's it sort of it, that community or the, the way that he brought everyone in i think allowed him to um he he drew on the town as extras in a lot of the chase scenes and i think you know he really just just made it part of the community he made it what was happening and yeah. kept everyone on board and and in you know in a way it seems the perfectly kind of jewisonian thing to like of course he would you know <laughs> bring an entire town into the creation of this uh of this thing it, it sounds like it was a pretty pretty sleepy town uh he describes it in one of his letters he describes how um for entertainment the townsfolk would go down and watch alan arkin wash his underwear in the in the ocean <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'd pay to see that. Um, <laughs> now, the the other remarkable thing is it may be that Jewison being Canadian was pivotal to this film as well, because this film's being made in 66, I think, and uh, 65, 66. 
Um, the Cold War is still on. We're only a couple of years removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, there are a lot of people who really are not happy that well, this American, so-called American director, is doing a film that seems to present a very balanced point of view between the Russians and the Americans. But that's literally was Jewison's, Jewison's objective, wasn't it? Yeah, he was a, you know, an equal opportunity offender in the sense that <laughs> the, you know, the Russians are are portrayed as 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 mostly inept. Uh, they they crash their submarine and they're sort of blundering around like like fools. And the townspeople are, you know, zany, paranoid wackos. And so it, it's definitely um, <laughs> he definitely uh, 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 takes shots on both sides. But you're right that that uh, it was not. It, 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 it seemed like a, to some people it was a politically politically risky thing to do and even a, maybe a, a sort of stupid thing to do to make fun of the Cold War in 1966. Right. You know, this was not this was not supposed to be funny uh, to the children were still doing duck and cover exercises in the schools. And it was a matter right. of, of life and death for in the minds of some. And but uh, but Jewison thought that that he could have something to say. And and point out the irrationality of of the Cold War and of international conflict through this wacky comedy. Yeah, it's a great anti-war film. And, um, you know, if this film had been come out a year later, it would have been too late. The Vietnam War, everything was going bad. Uh, you know, the protests and the riots, uh, the film would not have seemed funny then, you know, or if it had been made a year or two earlier, it wouldn't have been accepted. It just landed right in the right spot, I think, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And of course, he had such, as you alluded to earlier, he had such great comedians. He had yeah. Jonathan Winters and and Carl Reiner, so funny, and Tessie O'Shea and Paul Ford. Um, Paul Almost. Ford, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ben Blue, the the old town drunk, <laughs> yeah. um, who's who's. There's a recurring bit where Ben Blue can't get on his horse. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. No, it's just so funny, and um, and yeah. But he but he learned something in that in that film, which is that when he went to sell it, when he went to promote the film, it was him and Carl Reiner. Uh, no, him and Alan Arkin were going around promoting the film. And he, he, people were were excited by their by them after they'd seen the film, but yeah. no one was going to go and see. No one was coming out to an event to see Norman Jewison and Alan Arkin at this point. It was Alan Arkin's first film, yeah. and it was at this point that he really realized, like you know, for the next I don't know however many films, he only works with big movie stars after that because he realizes that you have to have a big star to sell a movie. It was an important lesson for him. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but a uh, film worth uh, digging out and watching again. I, I really enjoy it. Um, and, um, you know, talk a bit here, too, just um, we're getting into Toward Heat of the Night, uh, a film that uh, was a Best Picture winner, very, um, uh, again, dealing with uh, civil rights, uh, racial unrest, uh, head-on uh, in a very frank uh, way. Um, Jewison, again, um was hitting his stride. What was it that Jewison had a, a phrase for uh, the one thing that was required if you were making a film? It's in your book a couple of Raison times. Raison d'etre. Yeah. If it wasn't a good reason, don't make it, right? Yeah. He, you know, this is something that, that really shines through from the beginning to the end of his career is that um, he has tremendous respect for the movies. And I, and I think, again, this, this sort of, you have to remember that he's, he's learning his craft, you know, literally at the time that, that television is invented um, and is, and is, is, uh, you know, earning his chops from the, from the very origins of that industry um, comes in at the end of the studio system and in the gold, the end of the golden age of Hollywood, um, is is there for that kind of auteur moment in the late 1960s, the, the films that we're talking about. Um, yeah. and, and the thing that really animates him is that he's got this tremendous res- respect for the the medium of communication of, for film and television and, and not wanting to insult the audience. And, and it's all about the ideas. And that's really there from the, the Harry, Harry Belafonte special. He's not, he's not didactic. He doesn't make propaganda. Uh, but he he has a tremendous respect for the viewer and for and, and and for the for the medium in a weird way. Like he he really believes in film, you know, at a time, you know, he comes from a time when people would, would debate the purpose of film and were very idealistic about it. And he was idealistic about it. But a movie movies should be more than just, you know, just entertainment, just sort of anesthetizing the masses. He uh, 
he, you know, he, as I, as I say, he, uh, he, he hated, he never directed a sequel. He would never repeat himself, hated just entertainment for its own sake. He, he really believed that there needs to be something more. And so in the heat of the night was a prime example of that. I, I know of one instance where he thought later in his life, and I think in his eighties, uh, you know, this keen passion for film, I don't think has left him yet. Um, of, of, revisiting the russians and i know i talked to a well-known canadian comedian who was asked to collaborate with him on a script that would update that film and make it more about uh the middle east or not the cold war anymore uh rick mercer mercer told me that yeah you know about this then yeah he it was so the project was called high alert it was um as he was working on it as late as 2010 Wow. When he would have been in his mid 80s. And um, you're right. It was an updating of the the Russians are coming. It was I think it it had he started the ideas for this started rolling around in his head shortly after 9-11 and the sort of uh, the reaction against um, the Islamophobia and so on. So it was it was kind of about the Russians are coming updated to the war on terror. Yeah, would have been interesting. We'll be right back after this message. One of the hottest genres on TV today is the true crime docudrama. Earlier this year, Super Channel had great success with the documentary Catching a Serial Killer, Bruce MacArthur. As a result, they've just made a deal with the Canadian production house Breakthrough Entertainment to program five new unscripted true crime docuseries. The first of which is I Lived with a Killer, which comes to Super Channel Fuse starting June 25th. This weekly series doesn't just focus on the crime, but on the irreparable harm a killer imposes on their own families. Future titles in this series include Charm to Death, Cruise Ship Killers, and Sunshine Slangs. Try saying that five times fast. Don't miss the 20-episode series only on Super Channel. And by the way, there's a nationwide free preview June 14th to 23rd. And we're back. Let's just quickly run through a few of his uh, films now because we're running out of time and appreciate you being again, coming back and doing this, Ira. It's fun to talk to you about this uh, book. And uh, and of course, Dorman Jewison. Um, Heat of the Night, uh, Oscar winning film, although he does not win the best director. As you mentioned, this is a year uh, of uh, a tremendous year in Hollywood in terms of the Oscars and film because you've got uh, The Graduate and uh, I think um, Bonnie and Clyde, right? Were they also in contention that year? That's right. Um, So not a total shock he didn't win, but again, you wonder why the best picture wins and then the director doesn't. Um, Yeah, there were some uh, letters to that. (laughs) There there, there were some funny letters to that effect. There are some funny letters in the book from all kinds of people offering him condolences in a cheeky way. Um, do you think this was part of this uh, throughout his career and later on was a bit because he was regarded a bit as an outsider, as a bit of that Canadian, maybe he's a little pinko, he's, a, you know, depending on his choices, that there was some, uh, and, and of course, he took himself out of Hollywood for 10 years, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. And it's something that his his friends and colleagues debated amongst themselves. You could, you know, they, they would, it was a sort of topic of conversation, First of all, why isn't he more famous? And second of all, um, has did he hurt himself through his political attitudes? Um, some Sidney Poitier thought that was ridiculous. Uh, he he was you know he, he Sidney Poitier was like, well, if he hurt himself, where's the evidence of that? Like he he directed twenty four movies over over four decades and. Uh, you know, his films are up for like 46 Oscars. He wins the Irving G. Thalberg Award, the Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Like, like w- yeah. at what point did his career get screwed up because of his political? Like, he seems to be um, operating at such a high level for so long. It's it's hard to see any evidence that, that you know, he uh, suffered too much because of his political convictions. On the other hand, his agent, Larry Auerbach, says that... Uh, he could he could burn bridges and especially in the late 1960s he was kind of was very critical of american foreign policy in in vietnam and was running around running his mouth uh about the us and and uh and dumping on it 
uh, to anyone who would listen. And and then he leaves after the assassination of his friend uh, Bobby Kennedy. He he yeah. packs up and leaves uh, the U.S. and go, moves to England for the next ten years. That's fascinating. So you've got it's uh, you're in California. It's the 1968 election. Kennedy is just just barely won the California primary. And Jewison and his wife Dixie are waiting for him at a reception later, which he Kennedy never arrives at. Right? I That's mean, right. His, the gonna, proximity is amazing. They're going to Norman Jewison was supposed to have drinks at a party with Bobby Kennedy um, at uh, John Frankenheimer's house. The director John Frankenheimer. So wow. Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy wins the primary against. Um, is it? Is it uh, Eugene, oh, McCarthy. Uh, Eugene McCarthy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, wins the primary. Um, and, and it takes, takes too long. It, it's a very cl- tight race and it takes too long to count the ballots. It's taking forever. And Jewison and, and his wife, Dixie are at Bobby Kennedy's house with the actress, Melina Mercury, who, uh, is the star of Jewison's next film. And Jewison wanted to introduce that. He said, you know, Melina Mercury was a political activist who had been, um, who had been exiled from Greece in the military junta there. Um, and so he wanted to introduce Melina Mercury to Bobby Kennedy at, at John Frankenheimer's house. And they're waiting and they're waiting. And, you know, Jewison's checking his watch and, and Kennedy goes on TV and makes his, his address way, way later than he ought to have. Yeah. Um, and then decides to exit to the kitchen. And yeah, um, yeah there he got goes. shot. Yeah. Terrible. Um, quickly then, um, Jewison, of course, you know, we just, not only Kennedy, but Martin Luther King just a few months earlier assassinated. So he's, you know, very disillusioned, and he literally pulls up stakes, takes his family out of California and moves to England uh, for 10 years, right? That's right. Um, he he kind of skips the, the, you know, much of what we think of as the 1970s, 1970s film. We think of films like Mean Streets, The French Connection, those kind of gritty auteur films. Jewison kind of returns to his roots. He goes and does um, Fiddler on the Roof. He does Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, returns to his kind of musical origins um, and just kind of takes a pass on, you know, and does Rollerball, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but which is a violent movie, but it's not, it's not like The French Connection. Yeah. Um, and then the casting, again, we talked a bit about this, but just the Thomas Crown Affair, which I think is a wonderful film, very stylish, all those great um, images that are floating in and out of it all the time. Tricks that he picked up from Expo 67, right? That's right. He um, he goes to Expo 67, sees a couple of, uh, of uh, exhibits there. One was called Labyrinth, which was a National Film Board of Canada mm. exhibition. It was this huge kind of monstrosity that you would walk through. Um, and then in the last room, there was a, a kind of like immersive um, movie kind of thing that you would watch. It, was, it was, wasn't was a narrative film, but um, sort of scenes depicting different, like there'd be like a scene yeah. um, showing like a rocket taking off and another scene showing like Aboriginal people. And it was supposed to show like, you know, the, the human experience, all of the human experience sort of thing, very sort of 60s heady stuff. Um, but he sees that and he sees another one called Chris Chat uh, by Chris Chapman called Place in the Sun, which which introduced that multiple image a, a, technique. A place to stand. Place to stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah it's, and he incorporated it uh, genius and, and it made it a very stylish film. That chess game is uh, so romantic and sexy. It's amazing. Um, but who was going to almost, there was a, you know, when he was casting this, two other film icons almost ended up in the parts that Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway uh, played so well. And who were they? Yeah. So he wanted, I mean, he, Steve McQueen was not Thomas Crown in, in Norman Jewison's mind, but right. Thomas Crown was supposed to be suave and stylish and well-educated. And, um, and Steve McQueen, you know, was, was rough, ill-spoken, monosyllabic, uh, you know, looked at his feet, scuffed his feet, couldn't hold the, you know, so he, Jewison in his mind, it was, it was Sean Connery. Sean Connery was supposed to be Thomas yeah. Crown. And, and he went after Sean Connery pretty aggressively. Um, he, I think that Sean Connery had just come off a Bond film. Uh, you only live twice and uh, was taking a holiday in, in Barbados that just went on and on. And he, and he wouldn't read, he just didn't read the script. So he had to move on and he, and then uh, eventually Jewison caved to McQueen again, because he knew the, the importance of having a big star. He, yeah. he just had to have a big star for the role. 
Um, and he wanted uh, Bridget Bardot for the part of um, of Vicky Vicky Anderson, yeah. um, and uh, and it looked like that was going to work out. But Bridget Bardot wanted the film to shoot in in Europe, and uh, and in his mind, it was it was set in Boston. At this point, it was scheduled. There was nothing he could do about it, so that fell through. But he had yeah. had a quite a quite a list of uh, of uh, actresses, uh, Suzanne Plachet. Sharon Tate, um, who uh, tragically yeah. died in the, the Manson murders shortly thereafter. Yeah. Well, it, it really made a, a Dunaway's career. She'd already, of course, been in Bonnie and Clyde, but my goodness, unforgettable in that role. I, I interviewed her once and uh, many years ago, she was in Toronto and boy, she talked glowingly about Norman Jewison. She wanted to turn around in the cab and go look for his uh, offices <laughs> downtown. Uh, she just had nothing but praise for him and that experience. He has that effect on people. <laughs> uh, now, quickly then, my goodness, what do we got left here? So much of his career. We have to sort of leap Only, about, only about another 20 films. I yeah, know. It's, it's okay. So we're fleetingly going to jump over, uh, boy, the... Uh, I guess the Fiddler on the Roof was such a big budget production that was all outdoors in Yugoslavia. Uh, another big, big swing and big risk by Jewison, but a film that connected with audiences, didn't it? Yeah, um, it did connect with audiences. It was a huge hit. The industry was really on its ass in the in the early nineteen seventies, uh, late late sixties, early seventies. Films were not connecting with audiences. There had been all kinds of big budget films that had bombed. So that was a really important film for United Artists. Uh, they forked over a record. I think it was two million dollars for the um, for the rights to that. Um, and to get it, it was it you know there was a lot riding on it. It had to work. Um, the industry was in free fall. Um, and there's this you know hilarious story that Jewison rem- remembers where he. Uh, and called into the United Artists office uh, in New York by Arthur Krim, the the uh, head of United Artists, and it's this secret, confidential you know meeting where he's brought in, and they tell him you know, well how would you like to direct Fiddler on the Roof? And you know you can sort of hear a pin drop, and Jewison realizes they think I'm a Jew, right? And and you know he starts to sweat and he sees, and eventually he you know he's just got to come out with it and he says you know, gentlemen. What would you say if I told you I was a goy? And you know, they just Arthur Krim and the rest of them just about fall out of their chairs. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, they, they, they had a quick little huddle, and they told them, "Yeah, you know, no, we, no, we really want you, right? Yeah, we don't want a Seventh Avenue uh, Yiddish production. We want, we want something that will appeal to everyone." And so that's that's what he delivered, and the movie was a huge hit. It was a great story. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar, is that, uh, again, a very, boy, the next film he makes is sort of a night and day. It's uh, based on a, a, a song that's turned into an album, uh, and he, he just um, wings it. He, he shoots it fast and cheap, uh, ahead of its time or of its time? Yeah, well, both, I think, in some ways. Uh, of its time in the sense that it is it is sort of drenched in the flower power sort of ethos of the 1960s. He's working with very young people. The average age on that set was like, you know, 22 or something. It was, you know, very young people. They're all in the, in the Israeli desert. Um, you know, there's probably a bit of, a bit of marijuana going around. Um, and uh, it, the film really took over their lives. When you hear about Ted Neely and Carl Anderson and the others, yeah. uh, they really lived it. And they, you know, they thought of, they thought that they were walking on the ground that Jesus had walked on and, and were, yeah. you know, that the thorns that they were, that it, were pricking them were the thorns that had pricked, that were in Jesus's crown. And they, they really got into it. Jewison was a little older by this point. He was 45 and, um, and he, he didn't, you know, they describe him as being a bit of a fuddy duddy on that set that he wasn't Funny. interested in, uh, yeah. in sort of pr- pretending like he was a kid, but uh, ahead of its time in, in ahead of its time visually. So that, that was the first filmed rock opera. Um, and if you look at, at the, there's one song, especially um, where, uh, G- where Jesus decides to go through with the crucifixion and he's sort of wailing on top of a, of a Israeli hillside and the camera is swirling around his head. Um, and it, that feels like, 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 you know, he, he, he just came up with the MTV aesthetic. Like what, yeah. what you'll see on music videos 20 years later was what he devised in that, in that scene. 
Um, anticipated the, it. He worked with great cinematographers too, didn't he? All throughout his career. Pascal yeah. Wexler, Sven Nykvist. Yeah, incredible. Um, now, uh, a film I've jumped over, uh, Gailey Gailey. It's forgotten. I, I you know, I, I didn't, doesn't even, of all his films, and it was one where he realized he had to make $20 million back in 1969 or 70 on this film, and it bombed, right? How did, oh. he, re- how did he rebound from, from a, a catastrophe like that? Yeah, that was that was his first real failure. It needed to be. It was. It was. Um, he he was trying to do something like the. I think in his mind, it was supposed to be like The Graduate. It was supposed to be a kind of sex comedy, but of course, because he's Norman Jewis and he also wants to make it about ideas and he wants to make it about Ben Hecht, the journalist and and writer, um, and his experiences in Chicago at the turn of the century. They have to build these humongous sets, these these incredibly lush, lavish sets and recreate what chicago would have looked like it's actually a beautiful looking picture the production design is unbelievable um i i think that's again another underrated one people debate the title whether the title killed them on that one uh right yeah you know you, you get these sort of like letters from from advertising people saying are we are we telling the audience that this movie's about the gays um right because it's called gaily gaily and and uh it was it came from a Bliss Carmen poem, but uh, that yeah. that was largely lost when they released it in Chicago. Or, pardon me, when they released it in Europe, they called it Chicago, Chicago. What what just on that theme? What is uh, Jewison's most underappreciated film? Perhaps one that's an overlooked gem. Well, I, I think that um, In Country is a is an awfully good movie. Wow, uh, the end yeah. of it with with Bruce Willis. Uh, the end of that movie is is packs a real emotional punch. Um, some you know some people the the um, the producer Michael Barker, who's the uh, co-founder of Sony Pictures Classics, whenever they ask him to, he's sometimes asked to like show a scene, his favorite scene from Norman Jewison's films. They worked on the statement together, um, and and he he thinks that that last five minutes of In Country is the best work that Norman Jewison ever did. Wow, amazing. Another one to revisit. Uh, let's go to a big hit, Moonstruck, later on in the 80s now. Uh, this is a film that came at just the right time for Jewison, didn't it? Yeah, he was at a real low point in his career. Um, he had just, he, since he was about 10 years old, in the, it, he'd wanted to remake a film called um, The Man Who Could Work Miracles. He'd seen it in the Beach Theater in 1937 in Toronto. Wow. Um, it was it was uh, based on an H.G. Wells short story about a, a sort of ordinary shopkeeper who was given godlike powers from these sort of alien entities. It's kind of un- unexplained, but it's an ordinary guy who who has these godlike powers. Jewison fell in love with the film um, and, and had wanted to remake it for a long time. Finally, in the mid 1980s, he's got a script. He's got um, Richard Pryor will star and uh th- He's ready. To, he's ready to shoot it, and then um, rather unceremoniously, Columbia Pictures cancels the deal, won't greenlight it. He takes it to Universal. He takes it to Paramount. He takes it maybe to Fox. He takes it to anyone, everyone else in town. They all reject it, and it's a moment of of like real personal devastation for Norman Jewison. He he's sixty years old, I think. Uh, he's directed countless movies, most of them hits, and he's facing the kind of rejection that he always thought would end at some point. Like, I think he thought that once he reached some level of success, that um, that he wouldn't get rejected like that anymore. And he did. Uh, he, he was shot down. And, and I think like this was, and this is something that doesn't come across very much when you, I know you've spoken to Norman Jewison and he's, yeah. he's, become a real obviously a presence in the canadian media no kidding but he doesn't let you in that to that side of him mm-hmm. the side of him that uh that is capable of a kind of disillusionment depression anguish that is that is commensurate with the highs with the with the you know, right. tremendous idealism but so he was crushed and that's when he gets this this script and uh came comes in the mail john patrick shanley's script called the bride and the wolf uh it's it there's like coffee stains on it it's 
dog-eared, <laughs> clearly been kicking around. No one wants it. Uh, uh, you know, it's been rejected by half the studios in town. Judison reads it, and he, and he sees Moonstruck. He just sees it. So he goes in, and he, he gets yeah. Cher. Cher tells him she's not going to do it. Cher has no, no interest in Moonstruck. Right. Um, she's got albums to make. She's got other films. She's making, she's making The Witches of Eastwood. Oh, Eastwood, Eastwick. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and eventually, so he, eventually he, you know, he sort of has this meeting with Cher and he says, if you don't do this, uh, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And, and Cher finally decides, okay, I've got six weeks. Maybe I can, I can squeeze Moonstruck in if you can, if you can do it in six weeks. Uh, Cher pushes for Nicolas Cage, who's 17 years younger than, than she is at this point. Uh, he's just had his front teeth removed. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's in this, he's a method actor and he's just done this film birdie and he's had his teeth taken out for it. My God. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird choice, but you know, the, the, <laughs> it worked. Yeah. 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 No, he's terrific. And this film is so memorable and people can quote lines up and down. Uh, I love it. A very entertaining film, but, um, we're running quickly out of time here. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, Ira, but, uh, it's interesting. Just there's a reason the Jewison's book was called "This Terrible Business Has Been Good to Me," his autobiography, because it, as you say, it was a stressful, terrible business in many ways. A lot of great stories in your book about the fights, the business of filmmaking, how uh, it took someone with an iron will like Jewison to make 24 films, and that really comes across. So, congrats on that. Um, I just want to end with a little note about the Canadian Film Center, uh, his legacy, uh, his commitment to the next generation of Canadian filmmakers. Uh, talk a bit about how that came to be. Yeah, so in, in the mid-1980s, he's, he's moved back to Toronto at this point, splitting his time between his farm in Caledon and, and Malibu. And I think it had always bothered him that he hadn't made Canadian stories to some degree. You know, he, the infrastructure just wasn't here. The crews weren't here. The facilities weren't here. Um, and so he never made a film set in Canada or about Canada. And, um, and I think that bothered him. He was a, he's a very passionate, patriotic Canadian. Uh, he makes, makes uh, maple syrup on his, on his farm. And um, <laughs> he's still, he's still sending it to uh, Arkin and Carl uh, uh, Reiner toward the end of his life. I know. So uh, yeah, yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. He loves, loves this country. And I think he, 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 and it bothered him that he had to leave to have success. And he, he you know, if, I think he wanted to change that. And, uh, and the Canadian film center was in his mind, the answer to the American film Institute, the AFI. Um, and uh, so he founded that um, the Canadian film center in the mid 1980s. Um, and as you say, it's, it's uh, a way of, of carrying on the legacy of nurturing talent, um, allowing the next generation uh, of creators and, and it, storytellers it, to blossom here. It's just a great legacy. Listen, Ira, we're right out of time. I really want to thank you for having this conversation one more time. I learned so much about the book. Congratulations. It's a great read. Norman Jewish in a director's life. I urge everybody look it up. Sutherland House, available in bookstores everywhere. But congrats to you, Ira. And uh, Phil, I believe we actually recorded this one, right? So uh, we've got it. <laughs> and we don't have to do it again. But I hope to talk to you uh, soon sometime, Ira. Take care. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks much a appreciate lot. appreciate That's it for this episode of Brio TV, the podcast. Please follow and subscribe for all the info on future episodes. And remember, you can always catch up on TV news and reviews daily at Brio.tv. Thanks for listening.